Well, as we begin, would you pray with me? Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, what makes a sermon a good sermon? This is a question that, uh, that Peter Nafsker, uh, professor of homiletics, uh, that is preaching at Concordia Semer, Seminary, and, uh, and a member here at Messiah. It's a question uh, that he asked us last Sunday morning as Bible study began. What makes a sermon a good sermon? For just a moment, uh, I'd like you to, uh, to consider, or perhaps uh, if you were there, reconsider this question as, uh, as we begin this time together. What makes a sermon a good sermon? And, uh, and the first thing I'll share is this, uh, as you begin to think about your answer, the first answer that was given last week was, what makes a good sermon? It's short. And, uh, and I suppose that's uh, probably another way of saying that I realize that this is a kind of risky question uh, for a guy like me to ask, and, and yet the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that this is absolutely vital uh, for our life together. See, uh, last week, uh, Peter, you told us uh, that the New Testament uses a variety of words uh, to describe what we call preaching today. I use uh, is 33 of these words to be exact. And one of those words, uh, the word homileo, uh, which gives us homiletics, uh, which is uh, the study uh, that you are in the business of, uh, comes from a Greek word that means conversation. And so Peter told us uh, that the, uh, the first Easter sermon uh, probably took place on Easter Sunday when two of Jesus' disciples are walking down the road to Emmaus and they're conversing, uh, they're homileoing about everything that just happened. And that's when uh, then Jesus uh, joins in the conversation and he homileos uh, with them. And then uh, Peter told us uh, that a, a good preaching, it often looks like this. It often looks like a conversation. And that conversation starts uh, long before someone like me uh, gets up here in the pulpit as I get to know you and as I get to know uh, the way in which you hear and interact with a biblical text. And then Peter told us uh, uh, that a good sermon, a really good sermon, uh, might just involve some conversation during the sermon, but it certainly involves conversation after the sermon. As someone like me gets out of the pulpit, and that's because uh, as Jesus gets involved in our lives, we begin to imagine what it looks like to have him at the center of everything that we say and do and think. And so last week, uh, when Peter asked us what, what makes a sermon a good sermon, this is why it didn't surprise me uh, that some of you uh, gave answers like, you know, law and gospel, because uh, as Jesus uh, begins to be at the center of our lives, all of a sudden we start to imagine all the ways we don't measure up, and all the ways that we really need Jesus, and all the ways that he meets us right where we are and gives us what we don't deserve. You know, if all of that's going on, it, it leads us to questions about application. It makes us, because it's the place where we get to know Jesus better. And so last Sunday, uh, we uh, spent some time in Bible study talking about what makes a sermon a good sermon. But we didn't just talk about what makes a sermon a good sermon. 
And we also started the conversation, uh, the homileo, uh, about the reading that you just heard from 1 Corinthians. You know, as we did that, uh, one of the things that really impressed me was, uh, was how much uh, some of you know about the ancient city of Corinth and the Christians who call it home. Uh, you see, uh, the city of Corinth, uh, for those of you who weren't there, uh, is located about 40 miles west of Athens. And in the first century, when Paul writes this letter, it's the far richer city. Uh, and the reason why has to do with a couple of things. You see, in the centuries before Paul writes this letter, Athens has gone through a decline, and then uh, Rome rebuilds the city of Corinth from almost rubble. And, uh, and that's because uh, Corinth is located on this small strip of land. Peter told us it's called an isthmus, uh, which is just another way of saying that there is a small strip of land that connects all of southern Greece uh, to the rest of mainland Europe, and it's got strategic importance for the Roman Empire. Uh, because if you're a sailor traveling uh, from somewhere in Italy like Rome, and you're headed to uh, places like the Holy Land or uh, somewhere in Egypt, if you can get your boat across this small strip of land, it's going to cut about 100 miles off your journey. And so in the century before Paul writes this letter, uh, the Romans, they rebuild this city, and they provide the infrastructure uh, to do just that. And as you can probably imagine, it brings all sorts of people to this city. And so, uh, Peter, I think you described Corinth as a place for bars, boats, and trouble. And then uh, someone else in the room uh, had this to say, said, you know, uh, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And, uh, and that part is actually surprisingly true. You see, uh, the city of Corinth uh, is the patron city for the goddess Aphrodite, uh, the Greek goddess of, of lust and pleasure. And in her temple are about a thousand priestesses who, who might just help you to enjoy just that. Uh, but the, the most important detail, I think, is this. Corinth is a multicultural city. See, Corinth is a place where anything goes. And so you, you want to spend time with a priestess of Aphrodite? Go for it. You know, you want to worship in the, the temple of Isis or Poseidon. I mean, those temples are there, and I hope you have some fun. Or, I think this is the really interesting part, you want to be a devout, practicing Jew. If you want to do that, there's also room for you. There's also room for you so long as you don't pick on anyone else. You see, that's actually something that happens uh, during Paul's 18-month stay uh, in the city of Corinth. There's some leaders in the local Jewish synagogue who don't like what Paul's doing. And so they, they take Paul uh, to the local magistrate, and, and they go to that magistrate, and they say, you know, Paul is persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. And the judge, uh, the magistrate, uh, he kicks them out of court crime. And at this point in the story that you would actually think uh, that this is the end of the story, but the citizens of Corinth are upset. Uh, they're upset not at the apostle Paul, but at the synagogue leader for violating Corinth's number one value. Corinth is a place where anything goes. And so Corinth is this wealthy city, it's a multicultural city, and it's, it's one of a few places in the ancient world where, where Christians are never really persecuted. 
And in this way, uh, I think they're a lot like us. I mean, maybe you've got a, a neighbor who, who believes or values something different than you. You know, maybe they, they worship uh, at the temple to Aphrodite. Uh, but just like the people in Corinth, uh, you're, you're probably never, ever really concerned uh, that someone's going to throw you in jail or crucify you outside of town just because you're a Christian. In most ways, uh, for the people living in Corinth, this is a blessing. But you see, as you start to read this letter, uh, you also realize uh, that it's this fact, the fact uh, that they're never really persecuted, uh, that also begins to create a lot of their problems. Because you see, this external freedom that they experience, it started creating all of these internal divisions. And you know, what you have in Corinth, and and I want to stress this point, what you have in Corinth is not a group of faithful Christians and then a bunch of other people who are too lax and too lazy. We have in Corinth is a bunch of people who are just all over the map. I mean, you got one guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Uh, you got a bunch of drunk people who are, who are showing up to the Lord's Supper. And then one person, one person in this church is suing another person. You got that on one hand. But on the other hand, you, you got a bunch of people who are, who are saying that celibacy, celibacy inside of marriage is the only way to live. Or you got a bunch of other people who are, who are saying, you know, I see all of the sin in my life, all the sin in our world, and, and they find it incomprehensible that when Jesus returns, when he makes everything new, things like the world all around us, our bodies, they're not going to be a part of the new creation. And, and so what you have in Corinth is not a group of faithful Christians and then a bunch of people who are too lax and too lazy. What you have in Corinth is, is a bunch of people who are experiencing this external freedom and they're just all over the map. And so this, this is why Paul, a rather long introduction uh, to this letter, and if, if you were here last Sunday, uh, you've probably already heard some of this, uh, but I think it's really, really important if you want to understand what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, I think it's also really important if you want to understand what Paul's saying to us today. And so the time that we have uh, left, and I, I realize there's, there's not lots of it, uh, what I want to do uh, is, uh, is uh, walk you through just a little bit of what Paul has to say. And so what I want you to do is uh, pull out your bulletins and open up uh, to page four. At uh, the top of page four, you're going to find uh, today's second reading. Uh, it's uh, right at the top, like I said. And as you go there, uh, what you're going to notice is uh, a reading divided into two paragraphs, uh, but Paul is actually doing three things uh, in this letter at the beginning of it. Uh, First, he's identifying himself as the author. And that's what happens in verse 1. Second, uh, Paul is identifying the Corinthians as the recipient of this letter, and that's what happens in verses 2 and 3. And then third, uh, Paul is giving thanks for the Corinthians, which is what happens in verses 4 through the end of what you got there. And what you need to know is that uh, that what Paul is doing here, the way he's starting his letter, uh, it's the way that you start letters in the ancient world. It's kind of like uh, when we write a letter and we say, you know, dear mom or or, dear Abby. And so the interesting part uh, is not... Uh, that 
Paul is following the custom of his day as he begins this letter, the interesting thing are the subtle differences, uh, what Paul does different. And so, for example, if you look down at uh, verse 3, uh, Paul writes this. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, this is similar Uh, But it's subtly different from all the other letters that would have been written. You see, most letters would begin with just the words, greetings. And as you begin to uh, to think about the word greetings and the word grace, that they're kind of similar in Greek, uh, you also begin to think about the ways they're subtly different. But then Paul adds the words, peace which reminds us of the wholeness and the shalom that we read about in the Old Testament, Uh, wholeness and and shalom that we receive from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I know uh, know one of you asked uh, this this past week, and so the word Lord, uh, it was regularly used in Greco-Roman culture. Uh, And it referred referred to gods and rulers, uh, gods like the goddess Aphrodite, and rulers like Caesar, and, and for the people in this church who are largely Greco-Roman or Gentile in background and not Jewish, uh, they've come to learn something very different and something very specific, that there's just one Lord, and, uh, and his name isn't Caesar, and her name isn't Aphrodite, his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. And, you know, uh, we, we could go on like this for a while, uh, but there's one more thing in particular I want you to consider. Given everything that you know about the Christians in Corinth, the fact that they are a, a hot mess, that they got all sorts of sins and all sorts of problems, why on earth in verse 4 and following would Paul give thanks for them? I mean, the first century letter writing custom is to, uh, to give thanks at the beginning of a letter, but there's nothing to say that he's got to give thanks for the recipients of this letter, let alone their spiritual gifts, which Paul tells us in verse 7 are not lacking, yet they also seem like they certainly are lacking. And so, I mean, how can this be? How can Paul give thanks for them? And this is where verses 8 and 9 come in, verses 8 and 9 uh, that remind us that God is faithful. And so no matter how immature these Christians might be, no matter how many problems they might have, God's going to continue to work in their midst. And so he's going to keep them strong. He's going to keep them strong until Jesus uh, returns. And when he does, as Paul says later in this letter, they're all going to be changed. Just like we're all going to be changed in a flash in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet call. You see, that's how Paul can give thanks even for these Christians. You know, that's how this, uh, this letter speaks to me, because I'm not always ready to give thanks. You know, sometimes that's uh, because I see the, the problems uh, or the sins in other people. You know, I'm not ready to believe or to imagine uh, what can happen when Jesus is at the center. That he really does sanctify and make holy and mature those he's called. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's because I'm not always ready to believe those things about myself. Uh, that God uh, can also do these things for me. 
And yet God, God is faithful. He's faithful when he promises to redeem and restore our broken world, and he's faithful when he dies on a cross outside of Jerusalem so that these sorts of things would be possible for the Christians in Corinth, but also for people like us today. God is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. I know there's, a, there's one last thing uh, that I, I think we need to say uh, about the, uh, the letter uh, to Corinth uh, as we launch into a series of sermons and Bible studies uh, on the first three chapters of this book. And that, uh, that thing is this. Uh, the, the book might be called 1 Corinthians, uh, but it's, it's not the first letter that Paul writes carefully. Uh, what you discover is that it's, uh, it's at least the second letter uh, that Paul writes uh, to the Christians in this church. And we don't have the first letter, uh, but we do know that after he writes it, uh, his conversation with them uh, continues. You see, the, the Corinthians, uh, they send a letter to him asking some questions, and that leads to this letter, 1 Corinthians. And then it leads to a visit. And then it leads to another letter. And then it leads to the book that we have that's called Second uh, Corinthians. Well, I'm not entirely sure if, uh, if we should call what Paul is doing in these letters uh, preaching. Uh, we can leave that to Peter and ask him about that. Uh, it certainly does uh, remind me of uh, the conversation, the homileo, uh, that happens on the road to Emmaus between Jesus and his disciples. And that in the midst of, of conversations like these, the gospel gets shared. You see, that's why we're doing what we're doing uh, this January and February. You know, maybe you were here uh, last Sunday or here this morning uh, as we dug into next week's reading. Or maybe you weren't. Either way, I'd like to invite you uh, to join us in the conversation. And I... Uh, I realize this might seem like a shameless plug, except I'm, I'm convinced that it's, it's really important. And so one more time, I want you to flip to uh, one other place in your bulletin. It's near the end. I want you to go to page 11. Uh, open up your bulletins uh, to page 11. On page 11, uh, you find the reading for next week. You find the reading for next week uh, three questions at the bottom, and a way uh, to share something with next week's preacher. And what I want to challenge and encourage you to do this week is to read through this reading, and then to share a, a question or an observation that you have with Pastor Mike. Uh, his email address is printed at the bottom of this sermon. And Pastor Mike, I'm sorry for exploding your inbox this week. <laughs> but what I want you to know is that uh, as you do this, you're going to enter into the conversation. You're going to engage in the homileo, and you're going to participate in, uh, in what Martin Luther once called uh, the mutual conversation and consolation of the brothers and sisters, which is just another way of saying that as we talk about God's word together, the good news about Jesus, the gospel, is shared. And so may God bless you uh, as you do that this week, as you engage you participate 
as you enter into the conversation, and as you do it, as Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to all of you. Amen. And I may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. This time I invite you to rise as we now confess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> 